Well, good evening, uh, everyone, and welcome to this, uh, this, the first of two of this year's August Comte Memorial Lectures. Um, I'm Alex Voorhoeven. I'm the chair both tonight and, uh, and tomorrow evening, and I'll just briefly introduce tonight's lecture and also uh, give you the information about uh, tomorrow's. Um, so the August Comte Memorial Lectures are due to a gift from the London Positivist Society. We... Uh, to commemorate uh, who they regarded as the greatest philosopher of all time. And um, this gift has enabled the LSE to, to bring many leading philosophers and social scientists to the LSE to give these public lectures. Just to give you a taste of, of the history, uh, Raymond Aron spoke uh, on war and industrial society, Gilbert Ryle on man as a rational animal, Isaiah Berlin on historical inevitability, and A.J. Eyre on man as a subject for science. Uh, then recent years, the series was kicked off in 2006 by uh, Jon Elster, and then several distinguished philosophers have, have followed. So it's a great pleasure, but also fitting, I think, in this uh, series that we have with us Joshua Cohen, uh, who's the uh, Martha Sutton Weeks Professor of Ethics and Society and also Professor of Political Science, Philosophy, and Law, not a bad combination, all of them together, at Stanford University, um, and is also the leader of the Program on Global Justice at the Freeman Spogli Institute of International Studies um, in a program on liberation technology, some of which will be relevant uh, to our lectures today. Uh, and finally, also works at Apple. Uh, we were in the coffee shop, and he was scanning looking very disappointed at, uh, at uh, the pre prevalence of blackberries. We're in the dark ages here. Uh, but he said, you know, soon everything will change when you catch on, basically. Um, when research in motion goes out of business, blackberries won't be available. So um, uh, Joshua Cohn's background is as a political theorist, uh, but also trained in, in philosophy. and. Uh, much of his work is on democratic theory, and particularly dem uh, deliberative democracy. Those of you who work on it here, there's a hotbed of it at the LSE, uh, know uh, Josh's work from there. But he's also written, written on global justice, including on the foundations of human rights and distributive fairness, another theme that will come up in the Comte lectures. Uh, just to mention a few recent books that may be of interest to you. Uh, collection of essays, Philosophy, Politics, and Democracy. Uh, a book on Rousseau called A Free Community of Equals, uh, another collection of essays, The Arc of the Moral Universe, and uh, forthcoming are the Tanner Lectures on Politics, Power, and Public Reason. Now, besides these academic pursuits, uh, an important part of uh, Professor Cohen's work has been uh, as editor of the Boston Review, which is uh, a bi-monthly publication which takes, takes on basically major uh, interesting themes um, in, uh, that are topical and asks academics to step back from the nitty-gritty of the little fights in their discipline and uh, get down to some clear forthright uh, and uh, provocative answers. And it's, it's, uh, that work and other work has also engaged him in a, a series of public debates. So I'd say if we had to sum up our uh, speaker, <coughs> i say this is what we hope you can expect. Um, forthright, clear, topical, engaged, and able to navigate both between you know, deep philosophical questions about, for example, the nature of equality or 
the basis of our duties to the global poor, and on the same time, looking at topical uh, issues. So uh, with that, let's welcome Joshua Cohen. Thanks very much, uh, Alex. Uh, just uh, this is like when you get on the plane and they say it's a last chance and you know where you know where you're going. So this is the comp lecture, as I said. That's the title: uh, Mobile for Development, Human-Centered Design, Global Justice, and um, that's uh, me. So, Charles, do you mind s switching on your? Uh, no, I don't mic? mind it at all. Great. Okay. Good. <laughs> So I'm honored by the uh, opportunity to give these lectures, an opportunity that puts me in uh, some good company. As you just heard, these are some of the recent uh, 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 lecturers. And also a uh, company that, in uh, an extended sense, uh, includes uh, August Comte himself. Now, the intellectual sensibility expressed in these lectures is will be, in one way, very Comtean, but in another way, uh, not even remotely. Comtean. Not even remotely Comtean because I have no general story about history or social order or modes of thought. Still in a way very Comtean because the lectures have a characteristically Comtean blend of uh, philosophy and social science with an animating uh, humanistic practical concern. Uh, not to mention, as you'll see, their evident sympathy for the positive is distinct from the, met from the metaphysical and theological modes of thought. Uh, they also have a personal character for which I beg your indulgence. The lectures will be very different from anything I've ever done before in a philosophical talk. For me, they represent um, an experimental exploration of a relatively recent preoccupation. Uh, now, maybe you need to live and work in Silicon Valley, represented here, suffused with a problem-solving techno-enthusiasm to, sh to share the preoccupation. I hope that's not true, because none of you live and uh, work there, and I don't want to bore you. Um, but what I'm counting on is that while the preoccupation has a particular intensity in my uh, neighborhood, it resonates elsewhere, resonates with sufficient strength uh, to sustain your interest. Now, let me now descend from 100,000 feet to about 50,000 feet, and I'll tell you the plans. So tonight and tomorrow night, I'm going to be discussing some work I've been involved in, been doing, that involves innovative uses of mobile technologies to address human development challenges in informal settlements in Nairobi. In the first lecture, called Mobile for Development Meets uh, Human-Centered Design, I'll explain the intellectual and practical uh, background, which lies in ideas about mobile for development and human-centered design, the, which give their lectures their title and animating concerns. And then I'll discuss three projects that I'm currently involved in that emerge from that background. Uh, tomorrow night, in a lecture called Reflections on Global Justice, I'll begin by describing the animating hope of this uh, work, and then I'll explore some intellectual and moral uh, challenges uh, to it, intellectual and moral challenges to the work, to work of the kind that I'm going to be describing tonight. When I say work of the kind that I'm going to be describing tonight, I don't mean simply projects focused on mobile technology. I mean efforts by organizations from rich countries to make the world more just by working to improve the lives of low-income people in persistently poor countries that are also persistently poorly governed. Uh, the four challenges that I'll discuss tomorrow night come in a natural sequence, and they run roughly and intuitively as follows. 
the first challenge is that these projects are exploitative of the uh, organizations and people they aim to assist. The second is that even if they're not exploitative, they're self-defeating. The third is that even if they're not either exploitative or self-defeating, they're futile anyway. And the fourth is that even if they're not exploitative, self-defeating, or futile, they are in any case morally uh, misdirected. Uh, misdirected morally because people from wealthy countries ought to focus their efforts on the domestic societies of those countries, the, the rich countries themselves. At best, these efforts represent, so the criticism goes, morally good intentions gone awry, maybe gone awry because they are uh, suffused with a moralism that trains our monitors away from Earth. At worst, at worst they're self-serving schemes shrouded in high-minded <coughs> rhetoric. So that's the plan. Um, one final prefatory point. Um, as I've just indicated, the substance of the two lectures is going to be very different, and on the principle that form should follow substance, the presentational style will also be very different. Tonight is going to be high-intensity PowerPoint. And uh, you know, I had to do this in PowerPoint rather than Keynote, which is the Apple version of because I thought I might end up having to use some terrible Windows, you know, some outdated, but, but fortunately, anyway, uh, it's going to be high-intensity PowerPoint, and tomorrow night will be more traditionally, a more traditionally philosophical talk. So, high-intensity to begin. Um, I'm going to be telling you about some projects. The projects have both a research and a practical side. The projects come from a course. The course is pompously called Designing Liberation Technologies. In that course, we teach a method. It's a method of problem solving. Uh, the method is called uh, human-centered design. That's the problem-solving philosophy of Stanford's Institute of Design, the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, commonly known as the D School. In this course, we use this method to answer a question. The question has both an intellectual and a practical side. Here's the question. Can deliberate applications of mobile technology to human development challenges yield significant improvements in human well-being, even in low-income, poorly governed countries? In short, that is the M for D, mobile for development question. In the course, we pursue this a question using this method in some locations. The locations are Nairobi's informal settlements, uh, including both uh, Kibera and Matare, as well as some other settlements on the northern side of uh, Nairobi. The foundation of our efforts to pursue this question using this method in these locations are a set of relationships. Um, uh, the relationships include, for me, uh, I co-teach the course with Terry Winograd, who's a computer scientist at Stanford who runs a human-computer interaction uh, program. There with Zia Youssef, who is a CEO of a startup in San Francisco called Streetline, who used to work at the World Bank and also for uh, Hasso Plotner um, at SAP. And uh, Joe Fish Kay, who works at Nokia Research in Palo Alto and is also in the field of human-computer interaction. Our partners on the Nairobi side include MISA, the Batare Youth Sports Association, the executive director, David Thiru, uh, uh, pictured here, uh, KAISA, the Karura Youth uh, Sports Association. Both MISA and KAISA are soccer or football for development organizations. In the case of MISA, they run a soccer league with 25,000 kids in it and then build their development projects uh, on top of that. 
and also in Kibera with Umande Trust, which is uh, an organization focused on water and uh, sanitation. That's the director, Josiah uh, Omotu, uh, there. The relationships extend to the University of Nairobi Computer Science Department, uh, in particular to Peter Waganja, who's standing between me and Terry in the doorway, and Dan Orwa sitting in the middle at the table, both on the faculty in computer science. Uh, they extend to the students from the University of Nairobi Computer Science Department, four of whom are pictured here, along with two of our students and Ida Benale from Umande Trust, uh, to people like Fenis in uh, the informal settlement of Kibera, um, to uh, Sally Madsen and other people who helped to coach the teams in our course, to the uh, Omidyar Network, uh, Nokia Research Center in uh, Nairobi, directed by UC Impio, and to iHub, the Innovation Hub in Nairobi. This is Terry and I teaching a course in user-centered design at the end of March uh, there. Uh, this is a place where all the younger, uh, where a lot of younger developers uh, programmers and uh, start, you know, IT startups, uh, people running IT startups, younger Kenyans uh, hang out. Uh, to uh, the partnerships that extend to the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford and to the students, uh, Stanford students who are involved in these projects. Uh, Sunny John, who's a PhD student in political science. Risa Kitagawa, also a PhD student in political science. Nan Zhang, PhD student in political science. Margaret Hagen, law student uh, with a PhD uh, in international relations. Uh, Ray Gilstrap, a PhD student in computer science. And uh, Claire Bennett, uh, a recent graduate in uh, product design. Okay, that's the background. Now let me come to the main presentation. Uh, here's the outline. Uh, I'm going to start by uh, talking about the question, mobile for development, M for D. Uh, then I'm going to talk about the method, HCD. And then the title of the talk is M for D meets HCD. So the third part is going to be about meets. Uh, and that's going to be the three projects. So we'll start with the question. Here again is the question, can deliberate applications of mobile technology to human development challenges yield significant improvements in well-being even in low income and uh, poorly governed countries? The answer to this question is not obvious. It's not obvious because although it's obvious that mobile for development is cool, uh, that's a term of art in the Silicon Valley. Uh, cool uh, is not the same as effective. By effective, I mean yielding of significant human improvements. And what's desirable is to have uh, uh, projects that are effective. Uh, now, but mobile for development does have a certain kind of intuitive plausibility to it. Why is it theoretically plausible? That is, putting aside the techno-enthusiasm of the Silicon Valley neighborhood, why is it theoretically plausible? It's theoretically plausible because we know six things. Um, thing one is that economic growth is important for human development. By human development, I mean uh, the kinds of things that are captured in the Human Development Index, which includes uh, income and education and health. Uh, the second thing that we know is that technological change is a big driver of economic growth, which is important for human development. That's what uh, Bob Solo showed in 1956 and uh, got the Nobel Prize for it about uh, 40 years later. Uh, the third thing that we know is that mobile phones are the most rapidly adopted new technology in history. Here's a hard to, an impossible to read, I shouldn't say hard to read, impossible to read graph. Uh, all you really need to know is that this is mobile phones up here. 
Um, this is the internet over here, which is kind of languishing a little below uh, mobile phones. As, uh, that's not going to stay that way for long because as uh, smartphones get cheaper, uh, there will be uh, uh, internet, mobile, uh, internet access off mobile platforms. In any case, mobile phones are fantastically rapidly adopted technology. Subscriptions in the world now nearing 6 billion, subscribers nearing uh, 4 billion. Subscribers nearing 4 billion, that's about 60% plus of the world population. 60% isn't everybody. But what this does mean is that mobile is now indigenous in much of the world. It's part of the technological vernacular. And that means that when you do mobile for development projects, you are not parachuting in some foreign technology and saying, hey, I've got a good idea. One laptop per child. Here, go ahead and use it. And if you can figure out how to open it up, uh, then you can get into MIT. Has anybody ever used one of the one laptop per child computers? Yeah. You ever see? Yeah? Could you open it? It was hard the first time. It's really hard the first time. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, not well, yeah. No, it's really true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, very rapidly adopted technology, technology being a big driver of economic growth, economic growth being a big driver of human development. Uh, and in fact, mobile uh, adoption is vastly greater than other uh, information communication technologies. This is a little bit out of date. It goes up through 2008. It's communications growth in Africa. And this is the line on mobile phones. Um, uh, fixed telephone lines, useless uh, internet users, still languishing pretty close to the X. Uh, access, although that is increasing some. The, what's particularly important is that you've got this very high mobile penetration. Uh, with high mobile penetration, even in low-income settings, you don't, what that means is you don't need lots of economic growth before you get mobile growth. So, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, now you get 65% of the population can get a mobile signal. You've got 610 million uh, subscribers. In Kenya, roughly 50% of the population own mobile phones, and more than 80% have access to mobile phones. One for the family, they have access to the family phone. The sixth thing that we know is that there are some things that mobile phones are really good for. They can cut information and search costs, and some other kinds of transactions costs. And reduced search and information and other kinds of transaction costs is good for improving efficiency. The distributive effects are uncertain, point that will keep coming back to, but they do some good in uh, improving efficiency. So when you take these six things that we know together, you know, put them in, star, and mix, the conclusion that you get is maybe you can uh, get significant jump starts in human welfare through innovative uses of mobile technology. That is, maybe mobile for development. Maybe that idea makes sense. Why only maybe? Why don't, well, only maybe because we don't know. And what are some of the things that we don't know? Well, one thing that we don't know is, is this very high mobile penetration, but what are the mobile phones used for? Are they used for social networking or are they used for uh, economic or political purpose. You know some things about that, but fact is not very much. Second thing, really importantly, that we don't know is how important for human well-being is better information. I mean, there's a slogan, "Information is power." We all know that's sort of bullshit, but sort of true. But you know, how important is that? I mean, why is that? What's the question? We know that getting better information, changing the information somebody has, doesn't mean that they change their beliefs or attitudes or behavior. Uh, information isn't the same as persuasion. 
So the thing that mobile phones are good for, which is reducing costs, un unquestionably good for reducing the cost of information, how important is that? Well, there's a lot of literature on this now, and there's very mixed evidence on behavioral changes that come from intervention in, uh, information interventions in agric agriculture, for example, tell people uh, using fertilizer is good. And they say, okay, using fertilizer is good, it's good talking to you. Um, tell people how to clean water, and, and having clean water is good. How much uptake is there? Varies a lot. Uh, safer sex, um, some interventions uh, successful, some, the most successful one was done in eastern, uh, sorry, in western Kenya by Pascaline Dupas, which she showed was that if you tell teenage girls, it's really shocking, if you tell teenage girls, you know, sex is dangerous, doesn't do anything. If you tell them the relative risks of having sex with older men versus younger men, older men more commonly having AIDS, then they don't have so much sex with older men anymore. So there is some benefit. There's some health benefit. Uh, there may be some other benefits as well, but, uh, but we want um, uh, network externalities or something like that. And also mixed evidence on political accountability. If you tell people your elected officials aren't performing very well, they say, uh, you know, politics sucks. Um, if you tell them what the size of the budget is that's available to the elected officials, then they maybe get more exercised and more involved. So the evidence on this is very mixed. The evidence on who benefits is also, as I said earlier, uh, the distribution of uh, gains from improved uh, information, cheap and uh, uh, easier access to information at cheaper cost is uh, uh, not known. Um, What evidence is there uh, that we might look to to support the mobile for uh, development idea? Well, here's one thing that you might think is good evidence. If you look at uh, uh, a study done in 2009 by an economist at the World Bank, the 10% increase in mobile subscriptions in low-income countries is associated with a 0.8% increase in the growth rate. 0.8% is nothing to sneeze at. Um, the problem is that this is actually no evidence at all. It's no evidence at all because it's one of these uh, um, cross-country correlations. It doesn't tell you whether mobile phones are driving economic growth or economic growth means you can buy more mobile uh, access. It also doesn't tell you anything about the distributive consequences. Uh, other kinds of evidence. Uh, the most important study on uh, mobile for development study was a study uh, done by an economist, uh, Robert Jensen, uh, in 2007 on the introduction of mobile phones in Kerala. For those of you who don't know, and also for those of you who do know, um, Kerala is on the southwest coast of uh, India. What happens is that mobile towers are built uh, in three regions along the coast. They're introduced sequentially, three different regions, 97, 98, and then 2000. Uh, the expected mobile market uh, was higher income groups. That's why they put in the mobile towers. What happened was that about two-thirds of fishermen, it's along the coast, so there's a, fishing is a big industry, about two-thirds of fishermen uh, got mobile phones. Uh, what was the result of that? Well, before, the way the fish uh, industry, the fish market worked was the fishermen would sell at the market closest to home, 
Uh, price varied a lot along the coast between and among markets. And if there were no buyers left by the time the fishermen got uh, back with the fish, the fishermen got nothing. What happened after the introduction of mobile technology was that the fishermen would call from the boat to find out where the best market was. Prices equalized across markets, law of one price, and there were fewer wasted fish. Uh, does that matter? Uh, short answer is yes. It mattered to consumers who got lower prices and there was less price variation. It mattered to fishermen with mobile whose profits went up by 9%. And there were network externalities. Fishermen without mobile also benefited, although less than the fishermen with mobile technologies. As for the fish, they were unhappy either way. Either they were eaten by somebody or they were thrown back uh, in the before uh, treatment situation. Uh, you might, uh, the uh, particularly, uh, those of you who are particularly assiduous in thinking about the differences between causation and correlation might be wondering, was it the mobile phones that really drove this result? I mean, maybe in those years, there were a lot of fish around, and that's why the incomes went up. Well, uh, so was it the mobile phones? Here's the answer, yes. What this shows, this is, this is the kind of uh, data that you die for. Uh, uh, in um, uh, social science, uh, there was a sequential introduction, as I said, of the mobile towers. Uh, and you can see what happens. These are price variations um, introduced in region one, and you go from, you know, like a bad EKG to flatlining, which is also a bad EKG. But uh, anyway, it's different. Uh, region 2, it continues to you know, be all over the place, and then shh, after the mobile towers are added. Same thing in Region 3, so it really looks like uh, it's the phones that did it. Um, observation about this case, which is that it may be a very special case in terms of the income, the welfare gains, because fish are, as the earlier image was meant to suggest, a perishable commodity, and so it may be that all of the gains came from the fact that there were not a lot of fish that were being thrown over at the end of the day. But there's a second uh, uh, important study, widely cited, uh, about the Niger grain market done by uh, Jennifer Aker, who's a development economist at Tufts. Uh, Niger, as you may know, has the lowest human development index in the world, majority of the country rural subsistence farmers, and there was very high price dispersion across different grain markets and big distances between markets. What happens then is uh, mobile phones are rolled out in uh, Niger. Uh, the big dots are 2001. This happens to be where people live. Um, that's why they were rolled out there first, uh, and then expand across the uh, country. By two, in the period 2001 to 2007, landlines are just flat. There, nobody's building any landlines, and mobile grows from zero to 400,000, and it's continued to grow since. What happens as a consequence of this introduction of mobile phones, um, there's a reduction in the cost of search. You want to find out what the price of grain is in some market. You call instead of driving around if you're a trader. There's a 20% drop in price dispersion. Uh, and the biggest price compression comes where the distances between markets are greater. Uh, that you might think is interesting, but so what? Uh, the other shoe needs to drop. Um, so here's what happens when the other shoe drops. 
what you find is uh, for consumers this is good because there's less variation in grain prices, so less price risk for them. For traders it's good because they can go in for spatial arbitrage, they can figure out where to go and buy the grain and uh, get a better deal on the grain so their profits go up a lot. We don't know what happened with the farmers in this case. So good for some people, not, it's not clear that it's bad for farmers, but it could be that all of the gains uh, come, uh, are scooped up by the traders. Okay, here's a third example of um, mobile for development, which is a system in Kenya called M-Pesa. Uh, M-Pesa is a, basically a mobile, it's like mobile Western Union or mobile PayPal, mobile money transfer and payment system set up by Safaricon, which uh, dominates the mobile phone market in Kenya, which is about 70% uh, of the mobile phone market. About 70% of the adult population now uses M-Pesa. This is after uh, less than five years. It's just grown phenomenally. 75% of people who don't have bank accounts use M-Pesa, and about 75% of people who live on less than a dollar or a quarter a day use it. The way it works is you go to an agent, you deposit money in an M-Pesa account on your phone, you can then SMS money to other users, and then when you have a positive balance on your phone, you can go to an agent and redeem that positive balance, that e-float for shillings. What do people use it for? 95% use it for person-to-person -person transfers, remittances. Some people use it to run a positive balance to save money instead of under their pillow. Um, people use it to make purchases. Uh, people use it fewer to pay bills. And some people, very few, use it to uh, uh, repay loans. Do people like it? 91% uh, of the population says that shutting it would be really uh, bad. But uh, despite all of this, we don't know an answer. We don't know the answer to the big question about mobile for development. Uh, in the case of Kerala, um, as I said, the fish are perishable commodities. There's an existing market that you're uh, building on and uh, strengthening by reducing information asymmetries. And the welfare effects are kind of small. In Niger, also an existing market that you're building on. The effects are even smaller. The welfare effects are even smaller than in Kerala. And we don't know what happens with the farmers. In the case of M-Pesa, uh, fantastic system, very widely adopted. But it's not that clear what the welfare effects are. The one um, uh, study that's been done on welfare effects, and this is by the two people, Tavneet Suri and Billy Jack, who are the leading students of M-Pesa, is that basically the big welfare gain is if there's an income shock, like from sickness or some kind of accident or an earthquake or some bad you know, floods, uh, you get a bunch of person-to-person -person remittances from your friends and family, and so you get a cushion against those kinds of income shocks. Not a bad thing, but the, the gains are not that huge. Uh, in addition, um, none of the things that I've mentioned so far, either in Kerala or Niger or M-Pesa, are really mobile for development projects. In all of those cases, the gains, if there, to the extent that there were gains to low-income people, were byproducts of the introduction of mobile phones for more conventionally commercial purposes. Moreover, uh, we know, uh, as uh, Aker and Isaac and Beatty say, that mobile phones can't replace crucial public goods like roads, power, and water. So without roads, uh, farmers and traders in Zinder and Niger might have price information, 
but be unable to transport their goods to the market. So it's really nice to know all that information, but it doesn't do you any good. Or a furniture maker in Kibera might be able to take an order from a customer over the phone. That's great. They don't have to walk you, but you can't work for lack of available light. So uh, what we know is that mobile for development is a cool idea. Uh, on the effectiveness, the jury is still out. So. Uh, promising, yes. Effective, unsure. What does that mean? It means that if you're going to do it, it's very important to do the design right, the, the program design right, which brings me to the second part of the presentation about this method of human-centered design, which, as I said, is the method. This is an image from uh, the D School at uh, Stanford, design thinking, which is an approach to problem solving. And there are two angles that you might take to understanding what this approach to problem solving is. The first angle, less illuminating, is to think about it in terms of the individual, individual participants and in the teams that they form. The idea is that problem solving in any complex real problem requires a mix of uh, skills. And so what you really want is uh, people who have, uh, who are deep in a discipline the analytical thinking part of the T, but also capable of collaborating with people from other disciplines by finding some common vocabulary to describe the problem and potential solutions. So deep in disciplines and collaboration across disciplines. And then that collaboration is embodied in a team process, which is radically interdisciplinary. So the, the teams that collaborate in our course often include somebody from the business school, somebody from a social science department, somebody from an engineering department who can do some mobile programming, maybe somebody from anthropology or the ed school. But a more illuminating angle on design thinking is to think of it as a process. This is the design process with these different elements, and I'll explain the color loops a little bit later. The process is you get some prior understanding, you then go out and observe, you talk to people, but also look at the circumstances they're in, you develop a point of view, I'll explain that idea in a second, then ideate, stupid word, brainstorming, uh, then you develop prototypes and you test your prototypes. The basic idea, let me explain this a little bit more, the main elements is that you're really looking for a problem-solving approach that does three things. It includes empathy, like an ethnography, so it's user-centered, focused on the user. But then it also has a, 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 a phase that's more an exercise in imagination, focus on innovation, something more like art and philosophy than ethnography. And then you have to bring, you got to, you know, as Steve Jobs used to say, real artists ship, you got to produce something, you got to actually and so you have to solve the problem. So there's a kind of an engineering component to it. So to fill this out, so you do this, there's an ethnographic. So our students go to these informal settlements in Nairobi. There's an ethnographic aspect to it, which then gets crystallized in what, what's called jargony. But anyway, there it is, a point of view. Point of view is there's a user you've identified, there's a need of the user, and some insight about the circumstances of that user. And the, 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 the problem-solving challenge, the design challenge that you address is, uh, grows from that need finding. It's anchored in an understanding of the user and the user's needs. So, for example, one of our projects, uh, overburdened mother in Kibera, concerned for her family's well-being, needs daily, easily accessible source of clean water, even when there are shortages. So you develop an understanding of users and needs. That's the anchor of the project. 
Uh, you then, as I said, stupid word, but there it is, ideate, uh, brainstorm. Uh, think of brainstorming as you got your design challenge, and now you, you could ask yourself the question, how, how might we address this challenge? How might we make it safer for women to go to the latrine at night, provide ways for people to grow their own fresh food, get women to help each other to, uh, to save get 10 Kenyan shillings a day, or provide quick, uh, trusted information in a medical crisis? And that's the, when you're in this ideation phase, there are rules for the brainstorming exercise. Because you're trying to do something imaginative. You've got a user identity. Now you want to let your imagination run wild. So you multiply ideas, emphasize quantity of ideas over quality. Go for really crazy, wild ideas, things that could never happen. But maybe you learn something by thinking, wild ideas, but they're focused by the point of view. This is not free association. You're always thinking, how might we meet this design challenge that's ca captured in the point of view? If somebody says something that you don't like, uh, don't criticize it. Riff on it. Um, and then you, there are these three rules, defer judgment, defer judgment, and defer judgment. These are like what we don't do in philosophy. Somebody says something, you say, you know, it's like slice, dice, chop, get rid of it. But here it requires uh, this uh, deferring of judgment. Uh, and, and then you, what you, so you've got a project defined by the point of view, the user and need. And then you go through this imaginative exercise where you defer judgment. No, you never say a bad, there, are, there are bad people, no bad ideas. Um, and then you've got, but then, you know, real artists ship. So then what you start doing is very quickly uh, developing prototypes. And the slogans on prototyping in the design process are fail early, when the costs of failure are low, and fail often. Um, those are what you're aiming to do, is to fail early and fail often, because you're trying to learn something by testing stuff out. What do I mean by a prototype? Well, here's an example of a prototype, not from our course. That's a prototype. Uh, it's a proto what are you prototyping there? You're prototyping um, uh, a tool for sinus surgery. And all you're doing in the prototype is trying to figure out something about how it feels, to what's the right size to get something that feels comfortable in your hand. Uh, low cost, low fidelity prototyping. Uh, and, uh, and then, as I said earlier, there are, the, the, there are these colored lines here. The idea is you've got a point of view, you have a, a, you have a problem solving challenge defined by a user and a need. You then go wild, think of lots of ideas, you focus on something and you prototype it, and then you say, shit, this is not going anywhere. Uh, maybe what we really need to do is to go back and rethink the user and the need that we're trying to design for, go back to the well of observations that we have. Uh, but always bearing in mind, you don't smush these things together, always bearing in mind what phase that you're in. Whether you're in the phase that's like ethnography, where you're trying to understand users, whether you're in the phase that's like art and philosophy, where you're trying to be imaginative, uh, or whether you're in the phase that's like being in an engineering course where you've got to produce something at the end of it. The big challenge for us, uh, as you may be wondering about this, is I keep on saying that design thinking is anchored in users and needs. But 
how do you do, we, our course is at Stanford, how do you des do design thinking from a distance? And it goes back to what I said earlier about those relationships. We build relationships, a network of relationships with organizations that work in the informal settlements, with the University of Nairobi uh, students and faculty co who collaborate with us, with people at IHUB, uh, in order to make sure that the projects that we do uh, have some resonance with the circumstances in the informal settlements. And we do prototype testing in collaboration with our partners there in those settlements. Um, all in all, to use a familiar term around here, what you're really looking to do with design thinking is to have a kind of logic of discovery. These, whether these projects work or not is something that you then have to implement them, pilot them, test them, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But what you're looking, what you have here with design thinking is a disciplined way of figuring out projects that are worth pursuing in the first place by following that method. Is that, is what I just said true? Well, I'll tell you about some of the projects uh, that we're doing, and I'm going to tell you about three of them. Again, all three designed to answer this question. Can deliberate applications of mobile technology to human development challenges yield significant improvements in well-being even in low-income, poorly governed countries? Bearing in mind, again, now, you know, as I said, this is both an intellectual question, a research question, and it's a practical question. And I think both on the intellectual side and on the practical side, it's, I, you know, I'm up here. It's an open question. So, low-income, poorly governed countries, uh, we work in Kenya, in particular in Nairobi. Uh, Low-income, well, this is where Kenya stands on the uh, Human Development Index, that index that includes income per capita and education literacy and uh, health, morbidity, mortality. Um, a little above sub-Saharan Africa, but uh, I think it's fair to say that it's a relatively poor place. Poorly governed, uh, look, uh, lots of measures of this. Here's, you know, an international corruption index. Kenya is below Nigeria, um, tied with Sierra Leone and Zimbabwe, and a little bit above Angola. Um, there's a fair bit of corruption. Uh, poorly governed, uh, That's where he is now. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, he's on vacation. Um, uh, Moy, President Moy, president from 78 until 2002 with Mele Sinawi and uh, uh, President Bush. Um, uh, there's a succession of power in 2002. Uh, president Kibaki is elected. It's a great moment uh, until 2007 when there's the follow-on election, very contested, um, between uh, Kibaki and uh, Raila Odinga. Um, officially, Kibaki wins the election. Whom do you believe won the election? For all Kenyans, a quarter thought that Kibaki won. 57% thought that uh, Odinga won. If you uh, look, if you break down by uh, ethnicity, uh, the results are even sharper, though still less surprising. Uh, I know this is going to come as a shock. If you don't know, Kibaki is a Kikuyu, and 67% thought that it was an Kikuyu thought it was an honest election. 
um, Odinga is Luo. Uh, 95% of Luo thought that it was not an honest election. Uh, and uh, Kikuyu was the only group uh, that thought that it was an honest election. This, the division on this question resulted in terrible election violence, post-election violence in 2008. Uh, things have arguably improved some uh, politically in the period since. In 2010, there was a new constitution adopted with a, a very radical program on political decentralization. Um, Kibaki and Odinga both supported the constitutional change. Uh, but there's a, there are a lot of fears about what's going to happen around uh, the next election. In any case, I think it's fair to say poor, uh, and I think it's fair to say poorly governed. As I said earlier, we work in, the, in these informal settlements in Nairobi. In the informal settlements, about 73% of the population live below the Kenyan poverty line. Uh, not completely an uneducated, 78% have completed at least primary school. Uh, there's a lot of commercial activity, 30% 30, 30 own and operate small kind of micro-enterprises when you're in the informal settlements, particularly Kibera. There's a lot of uh, commercial activity you see. In the homes, though, 20% uh, have water pipe uh, in, 25% have uh, toilets, 12% uh, have garbage uh, picked up. So you see scenes like this. Um, this is the place where the flying toilet was invented, so people use uh, bags as toilets and then throw the bags, uh, and you see them lying all around. Uh, there are these uh, uh, biocenters, which are basically pay toilets, uh, which are a, a recent uh, product not, uh, not used uh, all that much. 22% of the homes have electricity, 12% have permanent walls, 8% of the population own their own homes, 37% feel safe. So uh, there are a lot of issues. We, there are no problems. There are issues in uh, uh, there. But, but uh, mobile access, more than 90%, we did a household survey, more than 90% of the population in 11 of the 13 villages in Kibera have mobile access. So mobile phones are all over the place. So. So what do you do? Uh, you, there's the idea. You say, well, maybe there's some way you can leverage this mobile access to do stuff. So here are the projects. First project is called Emaji, Mobile Water. Uh, who are the users here? There are the 80% plus of the population who need to go out and buy water. This is what it looks like to go out and buy water. You carry one of these 20-liter jerry cans around. Uh, what's the need? Uh, well, part of the need is that particularly when there are water shortages, which there are pretty frequently, you take uh, you know, a kind of random walk around to see if you can find water. And we found in the household survey people spend about two and a half hours a day uh, looking for water. Also, the water you buy isn't always clean. Uh, could be you're getting a bucket of cholera vectors uh, that you don't want to be drinking. And also, particularly when there are shortages, the price goes up. Uh, even when there aren't shortages, the prices are much higher in uh, the informal settlements than in central uh, Nairobi. So what's the idea of Emaji? The idea is that you interpose a server, a centralized information system, in between sellers of water and uh, buyers of water. The sellers of water uh, report um, using unstructured supplementary data, USSD, um, uh, 
you get a series of screens I'll show you in a second. You report availability of water, location, price, and water quality, what method is used for uh, uh, cleaning the water. Um, and then uh, buyers request information about where they can find water, and then they receive uh, listings. They get information about location, price, quality, and there is also a vendor rating system, a complaint system that's included here. So you're a water buyer. Um, uh, you get the screen that comes up. Are you, do you want to sell water? Do you want to buy water? Uh, you say you want to buy water. Uh, then it tells you where water is available in which of the villages in Kibera. You pick one of the villages, and then it tells you, see, there are, you can't give street addresses because there are no street addresses. And describing locations when you're working in 160 character space is hard, so you have to do things. So you're near the Tabitha Clinic. Um, and then you get a listing of the places near the Tabitha Clinic, and then uh, you, that it tells you uh, price. And, uh, and if you've asked for clean water, um, you say you only want clean water, then it tells you uh, that it's uh, clean. And you can complain if, uh, if it's not. Um, if you're a water vendor, this looks more complicated than it is, but we have Umande Trust registering the vendor. So vendors don't have to do this by themselves. Um, you, you get the screen that says, you dial a short code. I think it's star 357, something like that. Um, uh, it either recognizes you or it doesn't. Uh, let's say it recognizes you, then you have a pin. There's a four-digit PIN. You enter the PIN. Then you say, do you, are you going to give a new advertisement or update advertisement? Uh, and it allows you to advertise the water. If, you are, if it doesn't recognize you, then um, it asks for your location, a landmark. What's your purification method? None or chlorine or solar. Um, uh, it's, it's a, do you treat the water, yes or no? If you say yes, what's the method? Uh, and uh, and then it tells you that vendors who, who advertise purified water are subject to random quality testing. We're running a 15-month pilot of this beginning next uh, month. We're going to start with five villages uh, in um, this western, on the western side of uh, Kibera. Then we're going to extend it to all 13. The, the implementation is being led by Umande Trust that is going to market the service, enroll vendors, survey users, and evaluate water quality. And we have a local firm called Wezatele that handles the tech side. We're doing this as a field experiment with control and uh, treatment groups. Uh, we're going to check. We're going to have 500 households in the survey, and pre and po very roughly pre and post treatment, we check on how much on search time. How much time do you spend looking for water? What were the prices before and after the treatment? And we're going to do testing of water quality in the homes. Um, I was in in late March. There was a public launch of this project with about a thousand people in uh, Kibera. Um, that was great. It was nice to be there, uh, but that does produce experimental contamination because it means a lot of people who are in the control group know about the project. So it's not a definitive uh, test of it, but we're going to learn a lot about whether uh, this intervention really does what it's intended to do in terms of um, price, quality, and search costs. Uh, a second intervention is called uh, uh In this case, the users are people like Francine, who is a MISA 
uh, counselor. They have an HIV AIDS prevention and awareness program that provides in-person counseling. Um, the need uh, is, uh, well, this is in Matare, MISA. Uh, the youth lack good information about sexual behavior and, and uh, sexual reproductive health. And there are very high, on the behavioral side, very high rates of early pregnancy, STDs, and HIV AIDS. So the need is for the counselors to be able to give confidential and credible answers to questions when there's no one else to ask and when asking is awkward. So once again, uh, uh, the mobile idea is that you use this system to uh, text in a question. The question is then distributed to a counselor and there's a promise of a relatively rapid uh, answer uh, and you don't have to go in to get the answer and you don't have to do it face to face. Uh, so what you get is better information from a counseling group. Uh, there's a big question about whether this changes behavior. So once again, we're implementing this as uh, initially as an experiment, 640 participants over six months. In this case, what we have is a control group who are not participants in the program. They're not told about it. I mean, they might learn about it. So there is experimental contamination, but they might learn about it. We're not telling them about it. Then we have three treatment groups. The first treatment group, so the, the treatment groups are all told there is this system where you can get information. The first treatment group, they don't have to use it, but if they use it and ask a question, what they get back is some very generic answer of the kind that you could find posted on the wall someplace. There's no very specialized, specific answer to the question. The second um, treatment group uh, gets, they're told about this system, they're set reminders, they are all set reminders about it, and if they ask a question, they get a very specific answer to their question. The third treatment group is just like the second, they get a specific answer to their question, and they're also told something like, people who use this system really think it's good. There's a social cue. I mean, it will be true. Whatever we say will be true, but there will be some social cue that you are part of a group when you're using this thing. Um, so one question that we want a, an answer to is what's the uptake of this? How many people use it? We've done some pilots of this already on a low scale, and people, kids seem to use it. But we, what we really want to know is does inf the information itself change behavior? I mean, if you provide information about risks, does that change behavior? And we also want to know, is there any added punch to the social cues, to saying this is a system that people like you are finding useful? You know, there's a kind of group identity that's conveyed by the uh, information, and we want to see whether that changes behavior. This is a huge project for MISA now. Um, I'll mention this uh, tomorrow night. Okay, here's, and I know I'm running short on time, and, uh, but the good news is I'm, in a manner of speaking, running out of slides. Yeah. Not running out of things to say, but running out of slides. The third project is called Safe Matare. It was originally called Makmende. Makmende is key Swahili for make my day. Um, uh, here is the user and the need design thinking. Uh, the user and the need, uh, there's a, a woman in Matare who needs to get from point A to point B, uh, and uh, it's a dangerous place. Um, 
particularly dangerous. This was a result of uh, uh, conversations with uh, women in Matari, particularly unsafe, not surprisingly, at dawn and dusk. Uh, and the insight of this project came from a difference between men and women. How many people walking together is safe? These slides are due to Margaret Hagen, who's this law student who also has some talent as a slide preparer. Um, men said, safe if it's just me. Women said, got to be five to ten people to feel safe. So the insight was that there was this idea of safety in numbers that people in the community had. So the way Mende Safe Matare worked was we set up these groups of escorts who would walk together on a schedule. It was like a sneaker bus. You know, people would walk around on a schedule, because there were no roads where you could drive around. You would walk around, and the user who wants to walk from one place to another finds out where the walking group is, uh, meets up with the walking group, is escorted safely, because it's safety in numbers, is escorted safely to a place. Uh, and the uh, escorts are given a GPS-enabled phone that sends a signal of their location to server. Um, this is a more granular representation, irrelevantly granular, so I'll just uh, skip it. Um, there were a couple of challenges that were identified with on the implementation of this. First of all, uh, public safety is a responsibility of a Kenyan official, the district officer, constitutionally responsible for public security. So there had to be a partnership with the district officer. Secondly, there was an issue about vetting of escorts. These had to be trusted people in the community. And then third, there was an issue about the accountability of the escorts. To address these issues, there were a series of public meetings. I think the, the, the slides are moving me along faster. It keeps on jumping ahead. Um, we had a series of public meetings to talk about the project. We picked 24 people uh, pictured here uh, who were going to be the escorts. The, they were introduced in public, and the system was explained. I had these jackets so you could see them. Uh, they then uh, went on the job, uh, dawn and dusk. And uh, so we ran this pilot in December and January. Uh, the results, um, results were not great. What do I mean by not great? Uh, this, is, this is the kind of you know, truth in advertising part of the presentation. I'm not going to give you bullshit, which you could get um, if you're in this business of talking about mobile for development, if you would like to help can give you some. The results were not great. What do I mean by not great? We had problems about physical assault, bribery, ethnic favoritism, people not showing up for work, and requests for weapons. <laughs> there was a public meeting, where, and people said, look, it's, just give us weapons. And then, you know, <laughs> they said, why did you hire a bunch of old people? Why did you hire a bunch of old people to protect us? We want some, you know, strong young guys with uh, weapons. Uh, there were two escorts who were physically assaulted. Uh, and there seemed to be two sources of trouble. Maybe there were many others. One source of trouble was, you know, we were, so this is about, you know, science and practice. 
We wanted to know, does this system work? In order to know whether or not it worked, we wanted to make sure that the escorts showed up for work. How did we try to make sure that the escorts showed up for work? We paid them. Not a good idea. I mean, you might, some of you are sure, obviously, but a moronic idea. Why would you have thought to do that? Well, this was done in collaboration with the district officer who was in charge of publics and with MISA. And they thought, fine, pay him. But the payment um, was a, one source of uh, uh, trouble. For people basically saw it as a way of making some uh, money. Um, the second trouble was more kind of an eth you know, cultural ethnographic thing. I don't know. Sort of, you know, the, 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 the project team thought of this as being about safety. And it was safety in numbers. The, Escorts and the people in the community thought it was about security, which was beating up bad guys and protecting them from attack. So it didn't really work out too well, but uh, there were some things that were learned. For example, they found that um, women had actually started calling each other to walk together. So the safety in numbers idea sort of had taken a larger grip and then they thought, okay, well maybe we can do something, they thought, we thought maybe we could do something to build on that. So we thought we need a deeper understanding of these issues about public safety in the community. So we hired, we interviewed 17 people uh, at MISA headquarters and we hired this woman, Liz, uh, to get, help us to gather stories about safety issues. And uh, Margaret drew these nice uh, balloons where you, you know, share your story with the world. Tell us your stories about women's safety in uh, Matari. So we were going to collect these stories. And um, uh, this has not been entirely successful either. We hired Liz to be the coordinator to collect these stories. And just a few days ago, just when I thought these lectures were done, we got this message uh, emailed to us. I'm one of the escorts, and it has come to our attention that you people used us in the first phase of the project, later dumped us like dead dogs from the Safe Matari project. But one thing we are very happy that we have come to know the project coordinator. She lives in Roya, which is 50 kilometers out of Matari. We will do anything so that this project fails, since if you cannot work with us Matari community, then take your project and leave us with our problems, or else we will make sure that we have broken the legs of your current project coordinator, since she is not a member of our community, and we will deal with him as an outsider. Watch out, since we are not joking. Uh, she's not worried, but um, you know, we have that IRB uh, ethics of research. Anyway, this project is um, now back at the drawing board, and uh, uh, the, what's clear is that the need is huge and serious. Um, what's not clear is whether there is the kind of focused intervention of the kind that you can get from this design thinking method that will actually work to do something about it. And that issue about what kinds of problems design thinking is good for and what kinds of problems it may not be so good for will be a theme in the lecture tomorrow night. And um, this is the end of this one. And I, this might seem like, you know, a, like ending on a downbeat. Um, but 
Uh, that's the right place to end this because they're really, it, this, this is the non, this is the non, the no bullshit uh, way of ending this. The fact is there are a lot of open uh, questions and uh, that bracing message that the person we just hired who is not paid for her work is under this threat that they're going to break her, they're going to break her legs. Um, it's uh, serious work. Okay, that's what I have to say for tonight. Good, thank you. So we now have um, about almost 25 minutes for questions. I'll, I'll end strictly at 8 because uh, then there'll be reception. I'll, I'll remind you about it again at the end. Um, uh, not as advertised in the atrium, but in fact on the fifth floor in the senior uh, common room. So questions, uh, if you put up your hand, I'll try to take notes. And then when you get the microphone, um, so the gentleman over there first, please. Uh, when you get the microphone, please state your name um, so we all know where to find you if you're the person sending these messages. Yeah. <laughs> Leif Winnar, King's College. This is going to come back to August Comp, but the wind-up seemed different than the pitch. So let's start with Carol. Because I was throwing a curveball. <laughs> Go ahead, Leif. Let's start with Carol, Niger, and Kenya. Yeah. In those cases, it seemed that M4D could have stand, stood not for mobiles for development, but markets for development, right? This is an old story. You add yep. tech inside yep. of a market, it makes yep. it more efficient. There's yep. development yep. benefits that come from that. But I didn't see that this was a development-aimed uh, phenomenon you were describing. You just showed how this tech was taken up by, by rich people. It had spillover effects to poor people. There was more efficient markets. The price signaling was much better. Yeah. People got better. And then, so that, I still was wondering why this was in, put in a a development frame and yeah. for example all those techniques you were describing in stage two you know fail early and often have the prototypes why were we seeing that in a D school instead of a B school those seem like great B school uh, techniques but again why are we not oriented towards profit I mean what you're showing here uh, so far towards until the very end of the talk is that the profit motive can lead to good development outcomes that's not a surprise so that at that point I was thinking boy if this guy's gonna try to tell us that he's got a development project um, where we can measure good outcomes yeah, yeah. in competition with a profit motive, that's going to be tough, right? Because it's going to be hard to do even the studies to show the impact when you're competing with lots of big companies throwing lots of dollars trying to, you know, stay up with the same markets as, yeah. as your development project. Okay, but so that was the wind-up. And then the pitch. But, and the pitch was really interesting. These interventions were really interesting. The escort yeah. thing didn't work. Wasn't sure where that question was going, yeah. but I'm glad to hear okay, we got so there. Yeah. The escort thing didn't work. The, yeah. The, yeah. So here's the question. Look at the water thing and the sex ed thing. Do you think that the water thing can be best pursued under a development uh, umbrella where you're actually looking for human development outcomes or would be better pursued under a, a market system where you, you just allow these big companies to try to marketize the outcomes in some way and get a profit for it. The sex ed one seems like a, one that looks like a traditional development project where you really don't see a market there. It's hard to see how that could be marketized and you really are looking for uh, well-being outcomes. So that, that seemed the one that looked like development as I understand it. Let me ask the question in this way. 
you know, August Comte is famous for thinking that human intentional interventions can outperform the market. That's a controversial stance. Where do you think that you can add value to what all these market players are doing by taking a development framework for addressing these kinds of questions? Is it mostly in the things like the sex ed intervention? Where do you think you, as someone oriented towards human development, as opposed to profit, will be able to have the most impact? So there are lots of points there, and uh, I can't uh, uh, respond to all of them. Let me respond to some, and then I'll stop. And if I haven't responded to the most important ones, life, you'll come back at me. So the first point is uh, really an intellectual point or an analytical point about the relationship between the the front end and the back end, where you were seeing a tension between wind-up and pitch. Okay. So as I said in the presentation, the three projects that I described are not mobile for development projects. But they are projects where um, the introduction of mobile technology has had um, a a non-trivial impact on what you are describing as development goals. So if you take, for example, uh, the case of Kerala and the fish market, Fishermen, relatively poor group, they're doing better as a consequence of this. Consumers along the coast, who buy, relatively poor group, they're doing better as a consequence of this. So, in terms of human development outcome, good. Same with uh, Niger; it's a little more complicated because we don't know what happens to the farmers. Okay, but we okay. And in the case of uh, M-Pesa, seventy-five percent of people who live on less than a dollar or a quarter a day use this system. So. Human development, uh, you're running together, I think, human development as a dis- projects as a description of an intent and human development projects as a description of an outcome. So I was offering those as cases where, I'm talking about the intent. That's why I said they're not M4D project. They're not talking about the intent. I'm going to come to that issue about intent and whether intent matters tomorrow night. It's going to be important. So not talking about, they're not. What they do suggest for people who want to do M4D projects is that there is some promise that the intuitive line of argument uh, suggests. There's some promise in reality for that of improving human development outcomes by through the introduction of mobile technology because, and this is, I think, very important to what you're saying, in the paradigmatic, in the paradigm cases, you get the gains because of what mobile phones are unquestionably good for, which is reducing information costs, reducing, reducing transactions costs, because M-Pace is not about information costs, reducing transactions costs. You don't have to go to the countryside. You can just send the money. Okay, so, you, so, though, and so you get the gains. Now the question is, so there's some suggestion that actually there is some promise here. Now the issue is whether the projects of the kind that I'm describing can... Um, capture that promise and, uh, and uh, deliver on it in, this, in these more focused settings. So that, that the re- relationship of that, the front end, the wind up to the pitch, is a relationship of some evidence about the benefits that come, that come from mobile, which suggests that the M4D idea is not, uh, compl- uh, you know, has, has some plausibility to it. That's the suggestion. Now, um, uh, where are, I don't have 
a view about the categories of cases where you're going to get benefits from, except this. I think the ones where there's the strongest case, or the mobile for development projects where there's the strongest case, are the cases where you are trying to correct some kind of information cost, information asymmetry, transact. Those are the ones, like the water market case, where there's the strongest uh, case for the project. And there is no, the, um, uh, there are not big private firms. The Nairobi Water Company provides the water and then people steal the water. There are the people's pipes in the, and then they sell the water. Um, uh, there's no big company that's uh, going in there to exploit this opportunity. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's places, the, the paradigm, it's the places where you can, uh, where, where there's a, a, an information problem, which are the clearest cases. Then the, the extension, like with Nishauri, is it's an open question. Can you use this low-cost technology for sending messages as a way of changing preferences and values as for persuasion and changing behavior, not just for, for providing better information, because better information doesn't do that much all by itself. And that's what we're testing with the social cues idea. I don't know if that, I don't know if that helps at all. Even if it doesn't, you'll have to deal with it. <laughs> because Too I'd like to damn bad other, if it doesn't take help Take some you other leave. questions here. Um, uh, yes, right over here. Hi, I'm Emily Oliver. Thank you. That was such a good lecture. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to ask you one question, particularly as you work for Apple, because there are obviously so many potential benefits uh, for mobile, but at the same time, and I'm an Apple fan, there's <laughs> some issues with the hardware itself, particularly I understand that the minerals that are used in smartphones are supporting conflicts in the Congo, particularly yeah. the civil war and uh, rape being used as a weapon. So I just wondered if you had any solutions around that or just comments. Um, so uh, I, I don't, I, I think the conflict mineral story is not as you described, but I, I'm, uh, um, I'm just reporting there on what is said publicly by Apple in its supplier responsibility reports. And uh, lest you think that that's not, yeah. Well, um, I've, uh, on a related issue, uh, Leif is a, he's a interested in this issue too, this conflict, the guy who just asked the question. Um, uh, I've been involved for a long time before I went to Apple in uh, projects about labor standards in global supply chains, a project called Just Supply Chains. And I continue to have that involvement uh, as not as part of my Apple job, but uh, separately from Apple. And on, on the issue about Apple and uh, labor standards, I think my attitude about that is uh, that um, if um, if a company says we're going to do something really good uh, in this area, that you should evaluate that the same way you evaluate the products that are produced by the company, which is, okay, go ahead and do it and then t come back to me when you've actually done something. That's a little bit of an obscure answer, but I'm really not in a position 
uh, either formally or substantively to talk about Apple's policies on uh, labor standards or conflict minerals. I apologize for that. After you said such a nice thing about the presentation, I give you a stupid answer, but you know. Um, let's see, uh, Joe Wolf over there. Thank you, um, Joe Wolf from UCL. I'm just curious about um, your communication strategy when you're starting off the research project. So when you're talking to the officials in Kenya, uh, do you say we're studying you because you're poor and poorly governed? Yeah. I can answer that one easily. No. Do you have a follow-up? <laughs> well, I, 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 let I, me I mean, you believe in publicity and, and you yeah. believe in... So here's... I mean, I've given, uh, you know, I would give the same uh, presentation. Uh, there, are, you know, in uh, Nairobi that I gave here. Uh, so here, the situation in uh, one of the images that I showed early in the presentation uh, was we're sitting at, around the table at the University of Nairobi Computer Science Department, and Terry and I are standing in the door with Peter Morganjo, and the guy sitting at the end of the table is the next level up, the dean. Um, really, essentially, what we do when we work there is that we try not to go any higher than that in our conversations because of the issues about uh, corruption. Um, uh, we're, we work with our partners, our Kenyan organizations, MISA, KAISA, and uh, um, excuse me, Umande Trust. We did, in the case of the um, Project M. Maji, I mentioned there was a public launch of the project. There were about 1,000 people there, including um, you know, elected officials from the community. This, and, and, and this is a project that is in Odinga's district. So there, and there was somebody from Odinga's uh, office there. But we don't. Um, uh, we try, until we've got something really solid and worth pursuing, we try to keep our heads uh, down and uh, keep ourselves below the radar because the, co the corruption stuff is really, it's very uh, serious. You can't do anything. Is that? Well, I suppose you're working with people who agree that the country is poorly governed. Yes, and I'm going to talk tomorrow night yeah. about this issue. This is the first issue that I'm going to talk about tomorrow night about what the relation, the partnership relationship is with those organizations. That's this issue about whether you're exploiting. It's not exactly your issue, but it's a neighboring issue about whether you're exploiting the partners. It's essential to the projects that we do that we work with these partners. And and frankly, that's a, it's a as you could imagine, a complicated relationship in itself without going higher up. Gentlemen at the back there. Let me just mention shirt, one thing, so. and then we're just on the issue about, you know, Emaji. I mean, you know, we have had discussions with the Nairobi Water Company about testing water, about water testing. For, and the Nairobi Water Company is not interested because they don't want to be sued by. They say we send clean water out. If the water is dirty, people are going to come after us for it. So we don't want you testing water. So we'll try to find some way to test the water that doesn't involve testing it. Okay. Yes. Well, David Ahibe from the LSE. My question is just a follow-up to the last question. I think it's mainly in relation to the issue of 
cultural, I mean, the diversity in culture. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I wasn't at all surprised that the last project seemed seem to have failed completely. Because if that were to come to my own country, Nigeria, I expect to have the same results, whereby everybody just sees a white man and other people coming to give us security. That's all that comes to their mind. There's a white man who thinks there's something to be done. What can we get? Not really what can we get from it. It already creates a great dichotomy between the two groups. So I don't know how that factors into this particular project we are all doing generally. The cultural, the fact that it's an outsider-insider divide. How does that factor into it? And secondly, just a broader question that goes with that. Are these conditions for the uh, mobile uh, for development project initiative, are they right in those environments in which you are operating? I, I just I didn't get the last question. Are the conditions are the conditions right for the success yes. for a successful yes. mobile for development project in yes. those particular environments? Yes. Great. Um, so, on the first um, issue about the uh, predictable failure of the last project, Safe Matari, and what you can learn from that predictable failure. As I said earlier. Um, uh, this was a project that, for better or worse, and this will segue into the insider-outsider point more generally, which is hugely, hugely important, and it's the thing that I'm going to come to at the end tomorrow night. Um, uh, that was a project that we did in collaboration with the district officer, who is the official who's responsible for uh, public safety. So he didn't think, and he was actually the one, the way the transactions worked was, he was the one who was actually formally paying the escorts. So he, he didn't think it was doomed to failure. He put his stamp on it. And the, Now, we knew that it was difficult because MISA, the Matari Youth Sports Association, which is, does the soccer, they did not want formally to be a partner in the project, partly because security is the responsibility of the district officer, but also because they thought that they would become targets for the Mungiki, who are the gangs who operate in the informal settlements. It's not part of their mission, and they thought it would, uh, might represent a threat to them, but they thought that it was a good idea to do it. And I regard them as pretty good uh, judges. They've been operating for 26 years in Matare, nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. They have 25,000 kids in their organization. And, you know, I've walked around with the, excuse my language, what the fuck do I know? But I've walked around in Matari with them, and they are very deeply rooted in the community. This goes to the issue about insiders and outsiders. Absolutely fundamental question. And the way we try to navigate that issue is by having these local partners. And let me say, there are two, at least two kinds of local partners. There's an organization like MISA, um, which, by the way, just told its long-term Norwegian donors, go to hell, we're not taking your money anymore. So they're not, you know, they're an independent organization. Um, and then there's the University of Nairobi Computer Science Department. Now, the students from the University of Nairobi Computer Science Department have never been in the informal settlements before. When they go with our students, it's the first time they've ever been there. So they're from Nairobi, but they're outsiders to those settlements. The organizations are not outsiders, although, you know, 
we shouldn't have romantic pictures of communities. These are, you know, there's a hierarchy, there are different, you know, so, but that's how we try to navigate that insider-outsider issue is by working with these uh, partner partnerships. Are the conditions ripe for doing these mobile for development projects? That's what we're trying to find out. The mobile penetration is there, but, and this goes partly back to Leif's original question, and also to what my, you know, what my concern is, you know, so you've reduced the cost of information via mobile. Is that going to do any good? You know, what kind of uptake? That's what we're trying to find out. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, last question over here. I don't know the answer to that question. By the way, Sidgwick once said about Comte that he showed a fatuous self, Comte and uh, Spencer, that they both showed a kind of fatuous confidence in their uh, assertions about how the world works. I'm trying to be more Sidgwickian and less Comtean. Sacrilege <laughs> in this podium. <laughs> Thank you for your lecture. Uh, my Thank name is Paul Mizier. I'm assisting a uh, research project at the lab here at LSE on the potential impact of crowdsourcing for development purposes. Yeah. Do you know of any initiatives, uh, especially with Bobo, uh for microtasking and crowdsourcing uh, to increase revenues, local revenues, for example? Um, so two things about uh, crowd sourcing and the question is about crowdsourcing and microtasking on the crowdsourcing side the most important crowdsourcing platform Ushahidi came out of iHub which is you know I showed you one of the slides earlier it was developed there originally for reporting post-election violence so it's a terrific crowdsourcing platform um, you know it's basically mash up Google Maps and you know information that comes from mobile or but the fact about Ushahidi is the people who developed it are great. It's a great idea. But I know of no evidence at all that it's done any good for anybody. Because the question is what's done with the, you know, you've got the crowdsourced information and what happens next? And I don't think there's any plausible story. It, it, it could, there could be one, but I don't think there's any. On micro-tasking for income generation, there are two projects that I know about, one, both of which have some engagement in Kenya. One is called Text Eagle and the other is Samasource. Samasource is a nonprofit. Text Eagle is a for-profit. And both of them involve, um, uh, you, you want to know, um, there's some image and you want, you need a human being to figure out, like the image is blurry, and it's an image of pictures from a road race. And this image is blurry about what the number is, and you're trying to figure out whose picture that is, because you're trying to sell the pictures to people. So you uh, said, you know how this works, it's uh, Mechanical Turk with, um, Amazon's Mechanical Turk with, uh, crowdsourcing, what you do is you send the image to a bunch of people, to, and so because you need sort of human vision in order to figure, and then you pay for the uh, information. Uh, and the way that you figure, make sure that you're getting the right answer is that you crowdsource. The problem is if you crowdsource and pay, then the costs uh, go up a, a bunch. And that's the big challenge of this, of the microtasking um, uh, business model, is you're trying to increase people's income, but if you pay to a bunch of people in order to crowdsource, then the costs of doing it 
go up a bunch. So then you have to figure out some way of making sure that you've got reliable people in the first place. And there are different models. I don't know if this answers your question at all, but that, this is, there are different models of addressing this problem that Text Eagle and Samosource has have. Yeah. Is that? I, I'm, I'm sorry to, uh, to cut you off there, but there's plenty of time to, uh, to crowdsource Josh. Uh, at the uh, uh, drinks, which are now on the fifth floor, the uh, senior common room, what you do is, to be safe, you should travel in groups of five to ten. <laughs> Uh, we have a uh, we have a sneaker uh, bus leaving from those doors right over there, and you can take uh, the two lifts up or the stairs uh, all the way up to the fifth floor. You walk through what should be an empty uh, dining room now, uh, and then on the other side, uh, there will be the clink of glasses and uh, and uh, clean water straight yeah. from uh, the Kenyan mains. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, before we do that, please uh, thank uh, Josh Cohen. The tomorrow's lecture. Tomorrow's lecture will be uh, same time, same place uh, here, and it will be on the theme of Mobile for Development and Global Justice.